I'm matchmaker Maria, the founder of Agape Match. For over a decade, I've combined four generations of family matchmaking tradition with modern relationship psychology, behavioral science, and dating trends. With this unique expertise, I answer your dating and relationship questions and interview experts to give you the tools to find or keep the love of your life. This is Ask a Matchmaker. Welcome to the Ask a Matchmaker podcast. I am so excited for this week's guests. I have Professor Marsha Inhorn. She is a professor of anthropology and international affairs at Yale University and author of the latest book, Motherhood on Ice, The Mating Gap and Why Women Freeze Their Eggs. Marsha, welcome to the Ask a Matchmaker podcast. Oh, thank you. I'm so pleased to be here. I'm pleased to be. I'm pleased you're here. And I, I want to kick it off by that. Apparently you have a daughter who is a listener of this show before I even knew who you were and booked you for this show. Indeed. She's just turned 25 and she listens to your podcast and was very excited that I was going to be speaking with you today. What's your daughter's name? Let's give her a shout out. Her name is Justine. And she's out to Justine. (laughs) Okay. So, uh, you know, I really liked reading this book a lot because it talked about, uh, what is at stake for women who take comfort in freezing their eggs as they embark on their quests of, you know, partnership, pregnancy, and parenting. Tell me a little bit more about, you know, you're a professor at Yale, like you're, you're, you're smart. Uh, tell me a little bit more about like how, you know, I'm, I'm assuming you're looking at this from like the anthropological perspective. Tell me a little bit more about like how we came into this book. Yeah, so, you know, I am an anthropologist and I study health issues, reproductive health issues in women. I've been doing that for a very long time. And then egg freezing came into our reality in 2012, at the very end of 2012. And my partner at Yale said, we really should do a study of that. So I ended up doing a very large scale study of 150 American women who had frozen their eggs already, um, trying to find out what what were the motivations. And I should say that 36 of those women were freezing their eggs for medical reasons, especially young women with cancer, who, you know, are trying to preserve their fertility. And, but the rest, 114 women were, you know, mainly heterosexual, single women, who had been trying to find those three P's, the partnership, pregnancy, and parenthood. But by the time they reached their mid to late thirties, they had been unable to find a partner. And that was the major finding of this large study with you know, well over a hundred women, um, which surprised me to tell you the truth. And why, why was I surprised? In the literature, and I think in a lot of the media discussion of egg freezing, it's all about women freezing their eggs for educational and career purposes. Yeah, that's that's all I ever hear. Yes, all anyone ever hears. And, you know, to tell you the truth, the American Society for Reproductive Medicine, which was the official professional society that lifted the experimental label on egg freezing at the end of 2012, in 2018, they said we should be calling egg freezing planned oocyte prior preservation, as if women are doing this in a very planful, intentional way. But I I actually think that's the wrong message because in my study, very few women were, you know, pursuing egg freezing specifically to plan their careers. It was really about um, this rather sad reality of highly educated professional women, most of them very successful in their careers, um, who 
all along had been hoping for a partner, a stable, committed, eager, reproductive partner, a person that could partner with and marry ideally and have children with, and they hadn't been able to find that. So that was a surprise to me, given all of the discourse about, oh, this is about career planning, women, career planning. And I also have to add, you know, especially when the big tech firms uh, started offering egg freezing as a benefit in their fertility benefits programs back in the mid, you know, 2015, 2016, and so on, uh, there was also this sort of critique of egg freezing as, oh, big companies are paying off women to freeze their eggs so that they'll be these docile employees who'll put off childbearing. And again, I didn't find that at all in my study. I um, actually found women in tech who had advocated for egg freezing because they said, you know, married women in tech get fertility benefits for their IVF and their fertility problems. You know, it's very discriminatory to single women not to have um, right. access to the technology. And it's a very expensive technology. You know, it's 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 costly and, and it really precludes a lot of women for, from doing it, even if they would like to. I want to take a step back about your study. So you said it was 180 women? 150 overall and 114 of them were doing egg freezing electively. So they're really the main focus of my book, Motherhood on Ice. Was the study like funded by, um, by like the NIH or by Yale or who was behind yeah, that the, study? The funder was the U.S. National Science Foundation. Uh, wow. Cultural Anthropology and Science and Society programs within the NSF. And when you decided to sample like that, those 150 women, um, did you choose like a geography? Did you choose an age range? Like how did you decide on the sample? Yeah, I basically, you know, in anthropology, we're not so much about representative samples. We don't really do surveys. We do, we're much more uh, involved in sort of person-centered, very in-depth interviews with people. Mm -hmm. So I uh, basically had access to three major clinics on the East Coast, uh, kind of going from the upper East Coast down to Washington, DC, and then one uh, IVF clinic in on the West Coast, sort of in the heart of Silicon Valley. So uh, basically flyers were sent out and uh, women volunteered for the study very generously. I have to say, I mean, I was inundated with women wanting to participate in the study. And um, so it's mostly women on the East Coast and women on the West Coast, but 25% of women who volunteered were in different parts of America, you know, okay. Texas, Seattle, Chicago. Women have a lot of mobility in their jobs and some of them had moved and so forth. So I do feel like I, um, you know, it, it was mostly coastal, but also women from all over America who'd done their egg freezing in a variety of different places. And correct me if I'm wrong, but my assumption is that egg freezing is something that is an expensive thing. It doesn't seem like cheap, right? It is, it, it, that is the major obstacle for, for women who would want to use it. Right now, it is minimally, to do one cycle of egg freezing, it's minimally $10,000. Um, and many women have to buy excess hormonal medications and you have to self-inject these medications in order to stimulate your egg production. And so those are expensive medications. And so actually the cycle itself ends up costing sometimes $15,000, even more. So sort of 10 to $20,000 to do a cycle. And then you have to pay the annual storage uh, fees for your frozen eggs. 
And I found that that ranged between $500 and $1,500 annually. annually. And then wow. if you return to use those frozen eggs, you want to try using them. Uh, sort of average cost of having them fertilized and implanted in your uterus is about $6,000. So when all said and done, you know, depending, it could cost anywhere from twenty dollars to $30,000 to do a full cycle. And, you know, women in my study, I'm going to tell you, these were very educated professional women, 90% of them had been able to pay for egg freezing on their own, even though I must say they often had generous sort of um, uh, generous, uh, you know, gifting or parents saying, you know, we'd, we'd be happy to pay for some of it. But most women said, no, no, this is my, my activity. I'm going to pay for it on my own. But when I asked women, well, at the end of the day, do you have any recommendations? The main recommendation of these women is like, you know, really something needs to be done to make, bring the cost down or make health insurance more available for this. Because I know women in my friendship circle, or I have a sister, or I have cousins who would be a candidate for this, but there's no way based on their salary, they'll be able to easily afford it. And so there was this sense that because it's really not financed by health insurance for, for most women, most women literally pay out of pocket for it that that's a kind of discrimination against single women. Most of them are in their mid to late thirties or early forties who really wanna to try to preserve what remains of their fertility potential. And if you don't have the money, you know, you're, you're out of luck. So it's the reason it's a why I wanted to ask you these sort of foundational questions. Cause I want to share a little bit more of like the methodology and then our conclusions, because now we know that with the 150 women that you interview, they live mostly coastally, like a heavy majority of them. Right. And they also are most likely to be college educated by your own words. And they have the discretionary income to pay for this. So now we know like, okay, here's the foundation. Now let's talk about, you know, my assumption this whole time prior to, you know, being introduced to your study was mm -hmm. that women were doing this for their careers, like in order to focus in their career and your study, um, you're saying that you found it to that, that available reproductive partners are not the opportunities for reproductive partners are just not there. So as an anthropologist now, so now we're going to like kind of wrap in a little bit, tell me a little bit more about, you know, that finding and how do you view it as someone who is studying for, you know, mating? Right, right. Yeah, so uh, I have to say, I didn't know what I was going to find in this study. And as an anthropologist, I did very in-depth what we call ethnographic interviews, you know, sometimes an hour, two hours with what women. What is an ethnographic interview? Yeah, we do in anthropology, we are, we call our method ethnography, where we do, uh, we do very in-depth, very person-centered interviews with people. And we also often do something called participant observation, where we go to clinics or we go to places where people in the activity are doing their thing. But in my case, this is mostly uh, an ethnographic interview-based study where I asked women a few demographic questions just to sort of get at what I call the egg freezing demographic. Like who are these women? What age? What's their educational level? Where do they live? And you know, definitely found a pattern there. And then after that, I would just say, well, tell me your egg freezing story. And women often didn't need much prompting. You know, they really took off and, and often went you know, gave me very detailed uh, stories about what happened, why they were there in that place. 
And the huge surprise for me, because my main hypothesis is that this is going to have something to do with education and career planning, because that's what most of the literature was saying. The huge surprise was it wasn't about that. It was about what we could call the men as partners problem, which is a term actually used in international reproductive health circles that somehow men aren't living up to what they should be as reproductive partners. And here we are in the global north in the United States. And that was my key finding. I ended up calling it the mating gap, the lack of eligible, educated, and equal partners for women who wanted to have a partner, become pregnant, and be parents in a partnership, you know, in a loving relationship with somebody they, they felt was more or less their equal. And Why so- Why do you think that is? Why do you think that there's such a gap? Yeah, well, then you have to get to the underlying demography of education in America. And this is something that my good colleague, John Berger, uh, an economic- He's also journalist, been a guest on this pod. Very been a guest, yeah. He has a great book called Datanomics, you know, the lopsided numbers game in dating. But basically, he used U.S. census data to really show very clearly that there is a huge gap, a growing gap in the educational levels of men and women in this country. And to the to really, it's been going on for years now. So there are millions more American women of reproductive age between, say, age 22 and age 39 who have graduated from college in this country. It is a growing gap right now at the latest figures show that in 2020, there were 27% more American women in higher education than there were men in higher education. Enrollment, college enrollment? In, in, in universities and in four-year college. I did not realize it was 20. I always thought it was just like 55 to 45 ratio, but 27%, that's such an insane gap. It's an insane gap. It's growing. And in the year of COVID in 2021, there was a huge dropout of people even entering college and 71% of that decline was among men. So it was men deciding not to go. Do you know why that's happening? Is it because maybe there's uh, a calling for trade jobs, which again, there's nothing wrong with that. That's, I think it's amazing to do that. Uh, why, Why do you think that's happening? I'm well, I you know I have to be very clear. I did not interview men for my study. I think okay. somebody really needs to, but there is a lot of concern right now. There have been a number of books um, that have come out very recently. There's one called Adrift. There's one called The Crisis of Men and Boys, um, really looking at the fact that a lot of American men are not doing well educationally or in labor markets in this country. There's something is going on. And so there's a lot of attention to that. And I'm glad there is like, what can we do to try to get men back onto an educational trajectory in this country? And as a professor, that's something I truly believe we need to be doing. But there is this huge gap in terms of educated men. John Berger says there is a massive undersupply of college educated men and a massive oversupply of college educated women in this country. And it's a, what he called a demographic time bomb for women who are marriage-minded, who would like to find an educated man to be their partner. And so then this gets into the sort of anthropological issues of like, what are women looking for when they choose a mate, right? And, you know, women that I interviewed, they were all educated. I mean, virtually everybody had a BA degree. They had a bachelor's degree. 20% had stopped at the bachelor's level, but the rest had gone on and gotten master's degrees. Like 45% of these women had master's degrees. And then there were MDs, PhDs, JDs, MD, PhDs. This was a highly educated group of women. If I may interject, um, I, as a matchmaker now, I will tell you that like very rare 
maybe once or twice a year, do I hear a man tell me in my office and almost all of my clients have, I mean, all of my clients have had bachelors with the exception of a couple, um, but you know, have been successful in their careers as college dropouts. Um, but the majority of my clients have like a master's and even then I never hear from a man say to me, you know, Maria, she should be at least bachelor educated. Like those aren't words that come out of the men, at least that I meet, they're not using that parameter to help me do that. Now, look, I live in New York city. I live in, I don't live in New York city anymore. Excuse me. I live in New Jersey, but my office is still based out of New York. Um, A lot of the people that I might set up, they happen to be college educated because that is the demo that I'm attracting into my database. That is not a search function. However, when I interview women, just like you, and I've interviewed over 10,000 women at this point, it's, it's almost always I've heard, I can't, I, I could probably think in the last 15 years professionally in one hand where I've had a woman say to me, I don't care about his education. Yeah. In one hand, 15 years. Yeah. It's always, and like, so the first words out of the mouth and that there's nothing wrong with that. I feel like, by the way, like I am, you know, I'm married to someone who's also highly educated. I can understand the appeal of finding your equal. What I'm just pointing out is that from my area of expertise, because I want to share like together here, right. Yes, Cause we're coming yes. out from a different corners of the, the, yes. the, this block. Right. Um, I see from my professional perspective that the genders are also seeking out different things. Like they're putting priorities of different things. Yes. And so this is absolutely crucial. What you've just pointed out from your own, you have a vast study. You have 10,000 people you've worked with, you know, that is vast. Um, And that is absolutely important. So in anthropology, we have these terms, hypergamy and hypogamy. Hypergamy is marrying up. Hypogamy is marrying down. And traditionally in the U.S. and in most societies around the world, when men choose their mates, they engage in hypogamy. They don't care so much about the educational level. They often like to marry somebody slightly younger than them, you know? So men are kind of like not looking for that equal educational level necessarily. Women traditionally engage in hypergamy, marrying up to somebody a little older, more education, maybe makes more money. So these are traditional sort of things that people engage in in many countries. Marcia, would this exist? I'm so sorry. I'm not trying to go ahead. Um, Would this exist with that? And you might not be able to answer this question. It's just a hypothesis I have. Um, Would this exist in a society where we weren't socialized this way either? Like, do you see in more matriarchal societies that were not necessarily heavily influenced by, you know, medieval society and classical society of, you know, like the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans and their view of women, which heavily influenced like, you know, the middle ages. Did I say middle East before? I didn't mean that. I meant the middle ages. Yes. yes. Okay. So the middle ages that, you know, in that Victorian era, like how that's influenced today of our view of men's roles and women's roles. Does that exist in societies that were not influenced by that? Like, is there hypo, like, is that like a subconscious deciding factor in how people meet? Well, I have to say, unfortunately, I think virtually every society still has the patriarchy. I mean, we do, we haven't overcome all the sort of gender patriarchy that exists here. Uh, Certainly we have not, but what I think has really changed for women, if I might say, uh, 
all around the world, in, in more than 60% of the world's countries, women are outperforming men in higher education. Women are soaring educationally around the world in virtually every region of the world, except one region. I mean, women are what, doing- What well region is that? In Sub-Saharan Africa, unfortunately, men okay. still outperform women in higher education. But women all over the world are going to college and university and wanting to be educated. And this is something I think that women in America, you know, we had second wave feminism in the 70s and women's moms have encouraged daughters, you know, do what you want to be, be what you want to be, you know, pursue your passion, get education, have it all. Women want gender equality. I mean, women who are educated want to find somebody who's going to treat them as an equal and, you know, ideally have a good level of education and be somebody who's loving and a soulmate. They're looking for somebody who appreciates them for who they are. But I think traditionally, because of the patriarchy that goes back, you know, as you're saying, hundreds of years in Western society, um, you know, men aren't necessarily socialized for gender equality. They're maybe not getting the same messages um, in their socialization, like you should find somebody who's your equal. And so what I, there were these, what I called the gender laments of women and that they, you know, couldn't find somebody who sort of appreciated them for who they were at their level of education. And the word that was the running theme through these gender laments was intimidation. If you met somebody who wasn't as educated as you or didn't make as much money as you did, even if you tried to be not intimidating in your persona, men were often very intimidated. And that was sort of the end of the dating. And there were many sort of anecdotes that I had about women, you know, women who went out on dates, they were on apps, which most women had been on dating apps and there was a lot I could say about that but you know oh, Marsha I'm whatever you're thinking on apps like I personally and I've started saying this I find apps to be inherently misogynistic even though and, and, and also misandrous and even though they were created by men yes they have I was saying this the other day I said this a few weeks ago on the podcast too and I just want to say it to you like what I'm witnessing right now because there's been like five waves of online dating in the last 15 years 15 years, 25 years. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, of different dating behaviors. And right now, like, cause we're now in this generation, this new generation, your daughter belongs to this generation where they've never experienced analog dating. They only know digital dating and they only understand height as a mm -hmm. specific inch number. And I find that to be insanely misogynistic. And let me explain why. And yeah. what you think about this, because I think this hurts mating ultimately. Someone created a dating app back in 1995. And that man that created them back in 1990, that man that created it was just using it to find a woman. And in his patriarchy brain was like, okay, let's look at heights and body types and ages and religions. Like this is how they were saying, I can understand some of those filters, right? I can understand the filter for religion uh, because maybe you want to, or culture, because maybe you want to share some base values thing that might exist, even though I don't know how much I necessarily believe in that because just because someone's the same religion as you does not mean that they're necessarily going to be a good partner. Does it? Absolutely. Yeah. It doesn't mean more than it should mean, but whatever. Right. However, what it did was it created this place where you could have this like parameter for height. So before 1990, like when my parents were dating, right. My mom was like, Oh, I met a tall man today. She didn't say he was five foot 10, <laughs> you know, uh -huh. she didn't have, and of course, you know, they're in a, 
they're, they, they met in Europe. So they're in centimeters. <laughs> so it sounds even bigger. You know, he's 180 centimeters. Ooh, like she doesn't talk like that. You talk in tall or average or shorter like that. These were the words. So now that this app, these apps created by men, the whole concept of online dating has been created by men. Okay. They put in this height thing and you've socialized an entire new generation of women using height as a parameter to search for people. And then you get mad at those same women who are five foot six, who don't want to date someone under five foot nine. Yeah. Yeah. Like how, how dare you, you taught these women to suddenly use inches because the truth is if that woman who's five foot six, I always say this was at the open bar of a friend's wedding and that bride or groom's friend who was five foot seven started talking to her nine out of 10 times. It wouldn't even register at the same time. She'd be happy. She would be happy to be talking to him. But that woman is now not even using, like she would see five foot seven. She immediately thinks, oh, he's probably five foot five. Like she already Mm -hmm. assumes he's lying about his height before she meets him. Wow. Mm-hmm. she's already thinking I'm, he's going to be intimidated by my, like, there's already all these expectations of how bad the date's going to be based on a number. Yes. Which is really unfortunate, isn't it? Yeah. Well, it's unfortunate because, you know, based on your book and the studies that are coming out and it's not just you, even, um, what's his name? Professor Galloway. Yes. He's talking about the mating gap too, and how men aren't showing up. Yeah, that's he's one of the people who's very concerned about what's going on with men right now. And yeah, and I feel like my book and looking at egg freezing is sort of the result of what's going on with men. And, you know, and these dating apps, I have to say, women in this my study were almost uniformly using them or had used them, often had given up, I must say. And because they said it's torture, it's like a second job. I just, it is so consuming and it's so disappointing often. And then often when you meet the person and then they find out a few things about you, they want to have nothing to do with you and they ghost you. You know, bad behavior in online dating was was also something women talked a lot about. But yeah, you know, the the term of I you had a very interesting term about meeting people just naturally. In, women in my study use the term organic. They preferred to meet men organically. I call it out and about. Out and about. Yeah. Just meeting places. Right. You know, that was definitely the preference, but it was very hard. And, you know, what I find sad about the women I talked to is there was a lot of self-blame as if they had individually done something wrong, that it was somehow their fault that they hadn't found a partner by this point. And, you know, actually, you know, at the end of the day, it's like, not your fault. You share a demographic with thousands of other women who are in the same situation as you are. You know, you've reached your thirties and you had hoped you were going to find somebody along the way and you didn't. And so women say, well, maybe my standards were too high. Like maybe I was only looking up a little bit, or maybe I'm too picky. The term settling, you know, maybe it's because I don't want to settle. So women were sort of like self-reflecting, like maybe I did something wrong. I was too choosy or I, I should have been with my college boyfriend, even though I didn't love him. There was a lot of retrospection about what went wrong, but also women saying, gosh, I never thought I would end up this way. You know, I try to be friendly. I've got a lot of guy friends, but it's never comes to somebody who wants to partner with me. And it was often this issue of men feeling intimidated of these very successful women who, you know, had 
bought their own condos, had nice cars, had a very successful job, or, you know, the issue of like online dating, women taking off the things that might scare men, like, oh, I have a PhD, or, oh, I work for NASA, you know, women going on dates and telling the man where they worked, and men saying, oh my God, you're so much smarter than me, I can't go out with you, just really, those are misogynistic things, I mean, I agree with you, so that was a huge issue, the other thing that women told me about men, and this is a term I'd never come across, but especially on the West Coast, women in Silicon Valley, I said, you know, there are just so many Peter Pans out here. It's what like, does that mean? What's a Peter Pan? Men who just don't want to grow up. And these might actually be educated men, men working in tech, men who had good jobs, were affluent. And they just really have, they will wine and dine you and take you uh, on fabulous dates, but they have no intention of settling down with you. They just want to keep playing around, playing the field. And so when it comes to that point where, you know, you've been with them for a year and, you know, there's no sign of commitment. And so women were very frustrated about, about that. And, you know, some stories about women get to the point with the person they've been dating and they say, well, I'm going to freeze my eggs. And the man says, oh, that's, that's good. But still no discussion of the future of having children of being together. So the Peter Pans, I heard a lot about them in my book in the first, in chapter one, I have a table of the types of men. There were 10 types of men that women in my study, they had this lexicon of different types of men, you know, the alpha males, the beta males, the Peter Pans. Uh, the feminist men, and really funny, you know, really some hysterical sort of things that they had to say. But, you know, just trying to sort of look at men today and saying, what's going on? Why don't they want to mate? Why don't they want to commit? Why don't they want to be fathers? So this notion of unreadiness, men who are unready to do that or unready to do it on the same timeline that women need, because women do have a biological timeline. Mm -hmm. you know, fertility starts to decline at age 32. And at age 37, it's sometimes called the fertility cliff, cliff, because there's really a significant decline in fertility for many women in the late 30s, by age 37. And men don't have that biological timeline, you know, in the same sort of urgency. And so men just sort of putting it off, putting it off and saying, you know, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. I see myself in the future having children, but I'm just not ready now. So there were some really heartbreaking stories of women who had hung in there with men. With for time five. thieves, that's what we call them. Time thieves. Marsha, I'm going to give you my lingo now. A time I call thief. those time thieves. You are not yes. allowed to date a woman in her thirties for more than four months. These are my rules. If you okay. are a man listening to this, I do have male listeners. Okay. You should. Uh, I hope men do listen to you and read my book. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And I, I, I want to talk about men a little bit more here, but like, I feel like if you're a man dating woman, in her thirties, and if you don't know within four months, if she is someone you could seriously grow a family together, when you know, she wants to have a family one day, you need to break up. I don't care how much fun you're having. I don't care that you've dripped a trip to you've booked a trip to Jamaica in two months, you break up with her today because you're a time thief. Through yeah, through. I mean, that, that is, yeah, that is, she will hate you forever. No, I sadly had many women in my study who hung in for years. Oh yeah. I mean, I yeah. meet women like this all the time where it's like yeah. seven years. I'm like seven yeah. years. Yeah. No. And the man's like, Oh, I, I maybe, maybe, you know, when I got married, I have to say to my husband, um, he, he wasn't as educated as I was. He, he, in fact, had to go back to college. He was going back to college. He hadn't finished. And, but I told him 
we were both in our thirties at that point. We both had been married before and divorced. And I knew that I really wanted to have children. And so I said to him, you know, if you're going to be with me, we have to talk about having children because it's something really important to me. That's something I really know that I want to do. How and early he, on did you say that to your partner? Very early. We married within, we met in August and we were married the following May. So we were, okay. we, I was at the end of my PhD and I was moving. And so we had a lot of, you know, things I said, I'm not going to end up staying here. Would you be willing to move? I want to have children. Would you be willing to have children? I mean, I just, at that point knew myself really well. And I wanted to get these things done. And, and he, he said, you know, I've never really thought about having children. I never discussed it with my first wife. It wasn't a priority, but if that's really important to you, sure, let's talk about, you know, so, and he, he, he stayed the course. He was, he was a great dad. He was like one of the best dads out there, but it hadn't been part of his priority, but we talked about it. And, you know, for women, there were some sad stories in my study of women who had men promise to have children, children with them, even Mary with that promise and then revert and say, I really can't do it. So what's that all about? You know, what's going on with men? You know, there's this term that's been in the media and in some literature called single at heart, that there are men and women who just don't want to be in a couple. And if that's you, don't, don't deceive somebody. You know, if you really know that you're never going to partner permanently or, you know, marry, don't drag a woman along in her thirties with you. Um, so every, yeah, every week I get questions now, I guess there's like a new lingo coming out where people are being confronted with men telling them they want E N M ethical non-monogamy. And uh, I know poly, people, polyamory, can't, polyamory. people can't, yeah, people can't see Marsha's face listening to this podcast. You should know that she just rolled her eyes. I say old wine and new bottles. That's what I say. That's exactly, you know, it's funny because someone, there's this particular person, I don't know their name offhand, but she asks me every single week, what are your thoughts on ENM? And I always skip that question because I have no thoughts. I don't think about it ever. Anytime someone tells me they're doing ENM, you know, all I think, I don't know enough, but I think to myself as a professional matchmaker that strictly works with monogamous people who want to be in monogamous relationships that want to get married. You're not even in my periphery to think about you because someone who's planning on having kids in the next two years, I believe the majority of people that I'm speaking with are not participating in ENM. Yes. And yeah. I'm sure there's going to be someone's going like, well, I do ENM and we have kids and we have figured out good for you, but that's not my that's not, that's not in my day to day. I don't see that. And that that's okay. If you want to do that, as long as you're not deceiving people or expecting the majority of people who are swooping into your profile to be okay with it. And I do have, I have a hypothesis that the people that are saying that they do ENM, they're probably married and they're yeah. using or, online or, dating apps to get another person yeah. to get someone who's open-minded enough with the fact that they are married or in a relationship anyway, or in a relationship. Yeah. So I came across this as polyamory, you know, that there you are, did. yes, I did that. There are people out there who are polyamorous and apparently, uh, the women on the West coast talked about that more than the women on the East coast, but <laughs> apparently oh, come to the East coast now. Yeah. There are subcultures, uh, you know, of, of polyamory uh, on both coasts and probably in America. And I, I know, I know from my children's uh, generation that many, many more young people are saying they're polyamorous, but yeah. So, you know, I talked, I had one interview with a 
person who was finishing up graduate school who said, it's the bane, polyamory is the bane of my friend's existence here in the Bay Area. You know, all of these men saying they're polyamorous and that's not what my friends finishing graduate school want. They want to find a stable, committed, reproductive partner for them. One person for them who wants to, you know, have children. So yeah, I heard about that. And there were some women in my study who were the, they were with men who were polyamorous and still hoping to have children with them. So yes, I heard about that. And, you know, I mean, infidelity has been an age old phenomenon, right? Or just people having multiple partners. I don't see it as anything particularly different, except that you're talking about it, talking about it openly now, instead of sort of- Now we've added the word ethical to make it seem like you should be okay okay. with this. It's ethical. And it's like, well, no, I don't have to participate in this. And I don't have to find this acceptable because that's not what I want. I don't want my emotions to be tied into this. Yes. Because I think it is, it takes out a certain emotional bandwidth. It does. It certainly does. And I don't- to participate in that. You know, I have to say that in my study of these 114 women who froze their eggs electively, not because they had health problems or, you know, 82% of them at the time they froze their eggs uh, were single. Okay. Most of them just because they couldn't find a partner. Some of them said, I just haven't had a partner for years. I don't know what's wrong. It's a mystifying to me. So there were just the single women, no man in sight. And then there were many women who had hung in there in various kinds of relationships with unready men, with men who engaged in bad behavior, with men who, you know, for one reason or another, just couldn't get down to sort of making the final commitment to them. So there were a lot of breakups, breakup, egg freezing is happening after divorce, broken engagements, long-term broken relationships, relationships that are unstable, you know, relationships where the man's not ready egg freezing ends up being about the men as partners problem in these women's lives. And I have to say for me, because I am like the generation of mothers, right? You know, I, I am, I was, you know, I'm the older generation. I'm the generation of women's moms. Right. And I saw a a lot of these things back in my day that women that I went to graduate school with had trouble finding partners. Many of them ended up without partners or they divorced their partners or whatever. They couldn't find partners. And I thought like 30 years on, it's going to be a lot better, right? For women who are educated professionals. And I think for me, it was sad because I saw so many of the same things that hadn't really changed, which is going back to your question about like, you know, patriarchy is still with us. I mean, what can we do to change gender relations? What can we do to make heterosexual partnerships better and more uh, equitable? You know, how do we do that? How do we improve gender relations in our society? I mean, those are the fundamental questions. And then people like Scott Galloway and, you know, John Berger, people writing about the men in this sort of equation are saying like, How do we fix men? How do we get them back into education? How do we make them feel not intimidated of women who are more educated? How do we, you know, there's a crisis. Is there a crisis of men going on? How do we change some of the sort of culture of, you know, young men, things that are working against women? You know, who's going to take care of that? So there's concern about men in our country. And for me, I, you know, I've always, you know, basically work mostly with, mostly with women. What, what can we do to make things better for women and egg freezing? I'm not advocating egg freezing as some sort of wonderful, you know, panacea for the mating gap. 
It's not. Egg freezing can't fix the underlying social and demographic problems that we've been talking about. But I think for women who find themselves in their 30s, wanted to be partnered and are not partnered and don't have a partner in sight, egg freezing is kind of like a technological fix. You know, it's something that one can do if you have the financial means to sort of preserve some eggs and kind of hold out that hope toward the end of your reproductive lifespan that you might find somebody to partner with, become pregnant with your own biogenetic eggs and become a mom. You know, these are women who freeze their eggs. They want to become mothers. I mean, that's their dream. And so egg freezing is just sort of like this, this technology to bridge this mating gap. Women still hoping that they're going to meet somebody. And I must say, for women who are skeptical that they are going to meet a partner, egg freezing is also given a kind of reprieve so that women can think much more thoroughly about whether they want to become a single mother on their own. Um, so, you know, that is a growing phenomenon in our country too. Educated women just deciding that they haven't partnered. Um, and so they're going to just use donor sperm and, and become single moms that tech, that, that has certainly, that has like really increased mother, single mothers by choice. By choice. Exactly. Although I have to say a lot of it is really single mothers by circumstance, because a lot of women that I talked to said, you know, really that's a plan B. This is never how I imagined my life right. turning. I never imagined myself having children without a partner. I want a loving partner. My parents loved each other. We had a great family. I wanted to replicate that. But if it comes to it, I'm really contemplating it. And there were some women in my study who had done that. They had frozen their eggs on the way to single motherhood and they had babies on their own. And, you know, so I did, there were women, I didn't do a follow-up study with women in, who had, you know, talked to me, but some women contacted me to tell me that they had had a frozen egg baby or that they had tried using their frozen eggs and it hadn't worked. It is not a guarantee, believe me, not a guarantee, or that they were contemplating, you know, doing it on their own. So egg freezing in a way has opened up some reproductive choices that weren't there before. And so at the end of the day, I, I, I gave some recommendations at the end of my book saying, I don't really think it's a technology that women in their 20s should be using en masse. It's being marketed to young women, to Gen Z millennial women, but I personally don't think that's the appropriate demographic. I think egg freezing is something that women who reach their 30s haven't found a partner and really want to have children with their own eggs and they have the money to do it. That's really where I think women can start thinking about it. And if you're going to do it, it really probably should be in the early 30s rather than in the late 30s. There's a sort of sweet spot, definitely between 32 and 37, where fertility starts to decline and then rapidly declines. That's when women should be thinking about egg freezing. I have to say, sadly, too, what I learned in my study is that women often don't have adequate fertility education. Even women who are highly educated have never had the talk with a gynecologist about, well, when does fertility really start to decline? Women never being asked by their gynecologist, like, are you interested in having kids? If so, maybe we should take you off the pill. You know, just not having those conversations. And I think often physicians are worried that they're gonna offend their patients, but women need more fertility education. It is not easy in your 40s to have children with your own eggs and celebrities who are having babies in their late 40s are probably not using their own eggs. We need to have 
frank talks in this country about fertility. Yeah, that's another thing that I learned. Wow, Marsha, that's like incredible. I want to just kind of do a little bit of like a rapid fire here of some other things that as you've been speaking, uh, I've been kind of writing down that I want to ask you about. So we talked about single mothers by choice. Um, I don't know if you've heard about the recently the um, Surgeon General came out that we have a loneliness epidemic. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I fully agree. Um, and I think that that can be pretty bad, especially for women, not just in mating, but, you know, violence can be, is, is, uh, definitely something that can happen, <laughs> um, um, from people who are feeling loneliness. Yeah. Loneliness came up as a theme too, especially, you know, women who found themselves single going to an egg, uh, egg freezing in an IVF clinic, which is dedicated to married couples with infertility problems, seeing all right. of uh, women with rings on their fingers and feeling like so lonely, so isolated. How did I end up this way? You know, it was very difficult for some women to sort of do it on their own. And yeah, just being lonely. You know, what, what's the great thing about being partnered love and companionship and friendship. And but how do we market that to men? And it's not like, Oh, today suddenly a man's like, okay, I want to be in a relationship. I think it starts actually from I need a study. I need someone to give me a study on this, but like my conclusion, my, my, again, a hypothesis and conclusions here are going to be interject, but like, you know, intertwined here, but I find that learning how to be friends with the opposite sex so that eventually you can have some emotional connection, maybe have a relationship with one of your friends friends or whatever. It does start at a young age. You have yes. to not only see people around you have good relationships don't have to be fantastic, perfect, or great, but good. Yes. Um, but you also have to have the emotional muscle to create those social connections. And it doesn't start at 27. It starts when you're seven it starts when you're four. And I find that I am worried. I am worried as someone who is raising a five-year-old and a three-year-old, like, you know, I think about, I think about how, what will mating look like when they're older. Yeah. Oh, well, wonderful that you have, you know, young children, um, you know, just beautiful to have children in your life. And I think children, you know, are, it's the new generation of children. You often see little kids at ages three and five with little phones that they're looking at, you know? Mm -hmm. So the sort of social media aspect of loneliness starts very young, right? Where everything is so technologically mediated that people aren't really connecting in these sort of natural organic ways that we've described. Um, and so you end up having relationships with your technology, your, you know, iPad, your phone, your, you know, TV screen and your computer. But, you know, that's not the kind of human connection that people really need. We really do need human connections in our lives. And yes, there's been a lot of reporting about the loneliness, profound loneliness among young people, even among older people. The rates of singleness in our society are really high. In the back of my book, I have the statistics which I'm not going to say right now because I want to be precise about it, but just the numbers of people who are single, single in America, it's very high. So something, you know, something, something I guess needs to be fixed where people right. need to reconnect and, you know, reconnect and men and women need to reconnect in ways that maybe they aren't. And so, 
you know, you're a matchmaker. And I have to say there were women in my study who said, I haven't been successful with the dating apps. You know, it's been torture, time consuming at time sink. And, you know, in the olden days, people used matchmakers. I think I'm going to hire one. Look at, I put the money into egg freezing. I'm going to put my money into a matchmaker. So your services are, you know, people, yeah, it, people it's are true. Like there is certainly, uh, you could see from the signups. I mean, you could see that there's way more women than men across the industry signing up. I mean, for every man that signs up, I probably have 150 women. It's oh, insane. Gosh, really. But um, that be, you know, reflecting this gap that we're talking about that, you know, you've got all of these educated women who have a huge shortage of educated men. And if they're telling you that they want education, then yeah. they're just simply are not enough of those men. And so, so the last yeah. thing I want to ask you then, you mentioned beyond this exact thing that you just said is like, you mentioned the S word before about people settling. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I believe in the concept of settling personally and professionally. Professionally, I believe that my generation and the next generation, we have been certainly socialized to like think of things that are more important than other things. And I don't necessarily mean education. Mm -hmm. Um, I think about religion. I think about race. I think about height. I think mm -hmm. about age. I think about like the demographics that people are using to search on their online dating apps. Right. Mm -hmm. And as a result, I will meet women who I'm like, Hey, I have a match for you. He, he does this, this, this. And they'll say, Oh, I could have dated a guy like that when I was 27. I'm not going to, I want someone better now at 39. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, okay, I don't believe in the word settling. Like, I don't believe in that concept personally or professionally. But here's this opportunity of a great guy that wants to meet you. You're not even willing to go on a first date with him. And that's where I'm like, hold on. Yeah, I say hold on too. <laughs> okay. And I, I don't like the settling word either, you know. And at the end of my book, well, this is a term from our friend John Berger. He called it mixed collar mating. People yeah. of different backgrounds, different educational levels, and different class backgrounds sometimes. I just want to repeat that so people don't misunderstand mixed collared dating and mating. So that's yeah, like the collar, collar on your shirt. You get yeah. It, just, collar, blue collar. Right. Yeah. So just, he called it that, but just the fact that people from different backgrounds getting together and opening your mind to that, you know, I think again, in his book, he says, you know, classism is sort of worse than ever people feeling like they can only be with somebody in their same class background. Well, look at, you know, like you said, there are wonderful people who may not be identical to you, right? You know, and just because they went to a state college and didn't finish, you know, doesn't mean that they're not a wonderful, intelligent person. So at the end of my book, I uh, concurring with you and with John Berger, I, I said, look at women, you need to open up your mind because there simply are not enough educated men. There's a deficit in the millions in this country and in, in many the way you want them educated. Let's the way you want them educated, yeah. you know, with a bachelor's degree, maybe from an elite institution, there simply are not enough of those men around. And so until that issue is fixed of getting men back on the educational track, you're going to have to open your mind to men who just don't have the same credentials as you do. And so in anthropology, we'd call it hypogamy. You're going to have to sort of look down. I mean, I don't mean to say look down is unsettling, but just being with somebody who doesn't have the same education, the same background. And so that's what I did. You know, I, I married somebody who hadn't finished college. Well, he did finish college. Then he went on to get his master's degree. He was just sort of on a different timeline than I was. He's a highly intelligent person. And I knew that when I met him and he, you know, agreed that he would have children and he did, and he was a great dad. Right. And, you know, he still is. 
So I did that very thing that I'm advocating um, because otherwise there are going to be a lot of women who end up alone and they could be in a very fulfilling relationship as you're describing with somebody, a man who wants to be with them, um, just even if they don't have the exact same sort of background, religiously right. educated or otherwise. Right. Marsha, it was so wonderful speaking to you. I feel like we're going to definitely have to have you on again next season because there's just like so much more to talk about here. Um, And I think that, uh, I think this is a fantastic book that I believe all people should read. I'm going to include the link in the show notes, but it's called Motherhood on Ice, The Mating Gap and Why Women Freeze Their Eggs. And it's not just for women. I think think men should read this book. I I highly advocate for men to learning uh, about, you know, I mean, this is one way to step it up a little bit. Right. And, uh, not just like, Oh, go enroll into college and get a degree. It's like, no, uh, being an emotionally supportive partner, uh, I will take that any, any day of the week before any of the other parameters. Uh, here, here. That was really well put. Well, thank yeah. you so much for having me on your show. I've thoroughly enjoyed talking with you and I hope I'll have an opportunity in the future. Absolutely. Definitely want to have you on again. Uh, again, the book is by profession, professor Marsha Inhorn, motherhood on ice, the mating gap and why women freeze their eggs. The sh- link will be in the show notes. Thank you for listening to the ask a matchmaker podcast. Hey, I'm doing the Tulum retreat again. Uh, I put the link up last week and it's already been booked up and there's seven spots left. So if you want to come to Tulum in November, check out the show notes. There's a link there to come to my retreat in Tulum. So exciting. Um, what else? What else? What else? Uh, I guess that's it. Uh, thanks for listening to the Ask a Matchmaker podcast. And, um, you know, be lovable, but more importantly, be likable. See you next week.